Do we fully appreciate the power of our words? This is Rabbi Yitzchok Price with another episode of Tachlis Talks. Growth-oriented, partial-related Torah podcasts. We are up to the Torah portion of Baha'u'llah, a portion packed with so many different elements, different stories, themes, mitzvahs. But I want to focus on the issue really toward the very end of the Parsha of Miriam's speech, her speech regarding her brother Moshe, her speech with her brother Aaron about her brother Moshe. And it's hard to to perceive this in the English because it's really hard to translate how Miriam and Aaron are speaking, but she really is the primary captured in the verbiage in the Hebrew that, and she spoke, Miriam and Aaron. So they're together, but the verb describes that it's in the feminine that she spoke, she was the primary speaker. She's talking to Aaron about her brother Moshe. And she has some type of rather cryptic uh, in the text itself, comment related to Moshe's wife. Now, whatever issues she may have had with Moshe's wife, she knows about Moshe's wife for quite some time already. Even if she didn't get the invitation to their wedding in Midian, but Moshe has been back on the scene for quite a while. And even if, in fact, he kept it hush-hush that he'd married this woman, Sipora, because, in fact, according to Rashi, he didn't actually bring Sipora and the children into Egypt. As he was coming to Egypt, Aaron, his brother, convinced him to send Sipora and the children back. Why bring them into this trouble zone? But certainly from the time we have the pressure of Yisro, where Yisro shows up with Moshe's wife and children, Everybody would have known about Moshe's wife, and Miriam would have been part of that everyone to know about Moshe's wife, and she doesn't comment back then. What exactly is happening now that triggers a comment from Miriam to Aaron about Moshe's wife, and how is the response to her comment? The Torah is highlighting Moshe's humility. He's anav, he is the humble to the max, anav ma'od, and how is the... Next step, God's appearing suddenly to Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam. Pisom, suddenly. Why the stress on this being a sudden involvement of God into the story? Commentaries give a variety of approaches. I want to share one that combines some of the various elements that are happening over here. Immediately preceding this section was a story of prophecy, a story of 70 elders being selected to join Moshe, to assist him, and two who were not part of the 70, the whole story in itself, but Eldad and Medad who prophesies without becoming part of the pool of the 70. One basic approach is that Moshe selected six people representing each of the 12 tribes. Well, six times 12, that's 72. Only 70 could be used as the high court and as Moshe's associate system of 70 leaders, and whether by the lottery or by their choice, Eldon and Medad remain outside of the pool, but nonetheless are clearly candidates for that they are spiritually excellent enough to warrant prophecy from God. Their prophecy, according to some, triggers Sipporah's comment to her sister-in-law Miriam, woe to their wives. Miriam, like, what's up with that? What's What about their wives? And Zippor says, well, don't you know? When one is a prophet, they detach from their wife, as did my husband Moshe. To which Miriam challenges, whoa, why would he do that? We've all experienced prophecy. 
And we were all directed by God to go back home after the Sane experience. For three days, we're separated from our spouses. But then the Torah says, Go back to your tents. Go back and live as husband and wife. Go back and live normative existence. And what's up with Moshe? That he's being holier than thou, taking on this new stringency to keep himself spiritually elevated and detached. The Torah doesn't preach that we should have celibate monks. Moshe is supposed to be back together with his family. And Miriam reacts to Tzipora's comment by commenting, critiquing Moshe to Aaron. Well, the Torah comments, whoa, just who you're talking about over here. Moshe is anav ma'od, he is the ultimate of humility. God is basically saying he doesn't initiate stringencies on his own and feel I'm above everybody else. He does exactly what God asks of him. And anything he does is a reaction to his relationship with God and not coming from a place of condescending, looking down, trying to you know, hi- highlight himself as being distinct from the standard. If he's doing this, there's a reason he's doing this. And in fact, we're told, Moshe was told by God, tell everybody else, go back home. You, in fact, are living on a different plane of prophecy than any other Navi, any other prophet in history. In fact, Moshe is the only prophet of all of our prophets to be able to utilize the term Zeh, Devar Hashem. This is the word of God. Other prophets, Ko Amar Hashem, like this, thus saith the Lord. For some reason, all prophets speak in Old English. But Moshe can say, Zeh, Devar Hashem. This is the word of the Lord. He has a unique level of prophecy, unique degree of interplay, a unique face-to-face prophecy, and he can handle the sudden arrival of God. He's maintaining himself on a unique spiritual plane. Can you handle that, Miriam and Aaron? And they can't. And they are reminded, they get the message. They understand. That's one approach in the background what's happening over here. That in fact, Miriam's comment was not simply that I don't like Moshe's wife or I'm upset at who he chose for a spouse. It's related to the woman that he took and notice the Hebrew terminology or the translation. It's about the woman that he married, not the woman to whom he's married, because it's about the fact, hey, he married her. He has responsibilities to her. How come he's not still living as husband and wife? It's about the woman Asher Lakach that he had married and not the one he's maintaining because that was the issue. I don't like the fact that he's not maintaining the relationship with Zipporah, but Miriam was wrong. Now, ultimately, Miriam lives on as one of the greatest heroines of Jewish history. She herself has a level of connectivity with God far beyond anything we can imagine. But on her level of expected perfection, this is a flaw, a failure that is a setback when she has to go through a reset and goes through that period of detachment where she will then come back into the camp. Of course, Moshe himself is the one who prays on her behalf and God does bring her back. But this concept that she's critical of Moshe, is that itself wrong? And it seems it's not the fact that she could think maybe Moshe's wrong, but what do you do with that fact? I have reason to doubt, to challenge. It doesn't seem to fit my understanding of Jewish thought, Jewish philosophy, Jewish law. Well, if you have a question, ask Moshe. If you make the comment to Moshe, it can be understood as a quest for understanding, as a help me understand why you're doing this. And maybe even can I correct you if 
if you're not getting, maybe you are wrong and I need to correct you, which we are allowed to do. Fascinating Ibn Ezra that says we, we are to not to dismiss the, the behaviors of our leaders and just write them off and stay in the desert was the opportunity for anybody to come up with any challenge against Moshe's behavior. And in fact, that ultimately none really last is the greatest proof to his greatness. But Miriam could have turned the same comment to come to Moshe. Hey, Moshe, like brother Moshe, isn't this out of sync? That would have been a question. That would have been fair, legitimate, kosher, proper. But when she turns it to Aaron, well, it must not be a quest for the truth. Why turn to Aaron rather than Moshe? This is now a challenge. This is a criticism. This is Lashon Hara. And of course, she is punished. But ultimately, she's punished with saras, which is, again, often mistranslated as leprosy, but something that is seen as very, very difficult for the person. And in the Talmudic description of saras, it's compared to death to some degree. Mitzorah is chashuv kameis, having to be in absolute isolation from society. There's an element within saras that's like death for what? For words? And why do we make such a huge deal about Lashon Hara? Why is the Talmud describe? And Lashon Hara is described like the big three sins of, of murder and idolatry and adultery and other sexual improprieties. What's ultimately wrong with some words? To get some perspective on words, I want to share a very powerful piece. It's one of the opening pieces, actually the very first day's study in a book called Positive Word Power. Highly recommended. Uh, a book, Positive World Power, Building a Better World with the Words You Speak. In the opening section, it's, it's, descri- it's uh, divided into um, study for each day. He quotes over, very powerful source over here. And it's from a work called Sefer Hakana, an ancient work of our sages. The breath that Hashem put into us when man was created, what distinguished man from the rest of creation was the breath of God being pumped into the soul, which is translated by the Unkulus, the classic Targum, the classic translation to Aramaic, as Ruach Mamalala, a speaking spirit. The life force in man is his ability to speak. And he explains, the breath that Hashem put into us is what we utilize when we utter a word. And Chazal and the Sefer Kana teach that each word is a tiny fragment of our divine life force our neshama, being released into the world. That line again, each word, every word that we utter, is a tiny fragment of our divine life force. God blew into us, pumped into us our soul, and it's represented in our words. And every word is a tiny fragment of that neshama being released into the world. And he goes on to say, now it is clear why the words we speak wield such awesome power. They're the channel through which the vast, immeasurable power of the upper worlds is let loose in our physical world. A few words of prayer can open the gates of heaven. A few words of Lashon Hara, God forbid, can stir into action the fiery angels of prosecution in the heavenly court. A huge topic. Words, Lashon Hara, speech is a huge topic, but a taste of this topic over here. And the fact that what makes us human is that spark from above that separates us from all of the rest of the planet and as similar as there may be in some animal species and as 
capable. You can train a gorilla to mimic human behavior. And as brilliant as dolphins may or may not be, nothing else has that neshama with which we are gifted. Nothing else was granted that breath of God, that that's that ruach mamala, the capacity to speak. And yes, many animals have different forms of uttering noise. And those of you who are living in vicinity of Cincinnati or many of our friends on the East Coast in Maryland and Virginia who are dealing with the cicadas right now, if you're out there in the rest of the world, you don't know what I'm talking about, check it out, what cicadas are, check it out online. Being bombarded by these little locusts looking like, they're not locusts, but little bugs, which make enormous uh, noise. Uh, earlier today, I was just walking outside and you just heard this high-pitched hum of these millions of cicadas in the air. Of Some of you know what I'm talking about. But they can communicate with each other. They're mating signals. There are different ways of signaling where there may be food, but they cannot make calculated decisions as to what they're going to utter in order to brighten somebody's day or, God forbid, ruin somebody's life. They cannot make calculated determinations of how they're going to express praise of the Almighty or thank you to their mother or wife or sister or coworker, husband, neighbor, friend. We human beings have that capacity. We're gifted with speech that represents our thought, that can be utilized as a tool that we can control what we're going to say, when we're going to say, how we're going to say develop elaborate speech, or God forbid, limit ourselves to very, very coarse, but we have that flexibility. It's all a an outgrowth of that breath of God that's been pumped into us that we express back out. And a tiny fragment goes out. Used in a positive direction, we've created enormous positive with that little fragment. God forbid, we use the negative. What a tragic waste and what an abuse that we're using that very soul and the capacity of speech to do something that is so contrary to the mission of the soul. Learning the lesson from Miriam, and again, on her great, great, great lofty level, this one-time nominal challenge against Moshe's misapplication in her mind of how he's going to live his life, and she believes he's miscalculated his role as a prophet. And, and by the way, commentaries do discuss, it doesn't mean that she believed that on his own he did this in defiance in any way of, of God's system, but that some degree he wanted to have this level of distinction and therefore God responded by granting him that. Whatever it was that Moshe made that mistake, was on some level of misunderstanding, but then commenting to the wrong person about it the wrong way. Same words to the right person could have been a even a positive attempted rebuke for which she would be a hero for attempting to correct a wrong behavior. And then he would point out, ultimately, there's a reason why this works. Don't, no worries. But what could have been a heroic statement turns into a tragic statement. We learn to recognize the power of the words, to appreciate the gift that God has given us and use it correctly. We'll be able to do great, great things with our words, create great realities, and be the type of people who are far more likely to achieve our talents.